Morning, Covenant College. Good to see you this morning. I have one announcement, and then I will introduce our speaker. So the announcement I have, surprise, surprise, tomorrow is day of prayer. So, you know what? I like to hear cheers for prayer. That is good news to my heart. What a good gift y'all are. So tomorrow morning, sunrise service, 715 Rock City. Um, this semester, we're going to put prayer walls in all the residence halls and the chapel. So you will have an opportunity that if you have a prayer request, you can write it on not the walls, but on the paper that's on the walls. Okay, and then as you pass by the prayers, pray for those prayers and then, or those people, and then write a prayer um, yourself on the wall. So that will be in all the residence halls and in the chapel. Um, also, tomorrow morning at 10.30 a.m., I believe in Mills Hall, there's going to be prayer for immigrants and refugees. I would highly encourage you to come out for that as well. And then also this afternoon before the end of the business day, an email is going to go out. This semester, instead of the offices packet, you are going to receive a prayer packet. Please utilize that throughout tomorrow. And I would encourage you in your personal reflections and time with the Lord today to dig in deep to Revelation 5 and let that be your meditation over um, tomorrow. Okay, so now I'm switching gears. I'm out of announcement mode. I'm in the introduction mode. This morning, it is a true honor for me to stand before you and to introduce to you Mr. Isaiah Barnfield. <laughs> I should say no more because that says it all, but Isaiah received his master's degree in higher education from Geneva College. Before coming to Covenant College, he served as a resident director at Greenville College, and now he is in Founders Hall. Um, some, founders. some of you might not know, but the Founders improvements that happened over this summer began in the brain of Isaiah. He took the initiative to create an environment that will enhance the academic environment here as well as the residential environment. So I want you to know that due credit goes where credit is due. Um, some things you already know about Isaiah, he's a server at heart. He thinks not of himself, but he constantly thinks about you as students and is an advocate for you at the table. He is the possessor of all things random facts. If you have car trouble, he will let you know where to get it fixed and how much it will cost. If you need to know how to fix anything like electronic, Isaiah is your man. But the thing that I love the most about Isaiah Barnfield is that he is a lover of Jesus. And he constantly and is passionate about Jesus increasing and himself decreasing. So this morning, please join me in welcoming one of our own, Mr. Isaiah Barnfield. So, I've never done this before, so I did what anybody would do that's never preached a sermon, and I got no advice from anyone. So, <laughs> let's go with this. <laughs> so, I've attended four colleges, and I've worked at two, and I have to tell you that Covenant is awesome. Uh, the integration of faith and learning, the unity amongst the theology of the faculty, this is not only unlike any secular institution, it's unlike any Christian higher education that I have ever experienced. I knew that I wanted to work at Covenant College whenever I was in grad school at Geneva, 
and my classmates had either attended Covenant or worked at Covenant, and they told me all about the hall culture and all of the hall life. Um, I've never encountered a more engaged, involved, connected, or intentional student body, and I want to tell you guys that me and Haley are really appreciative to be here. Um, the traditions, the relics, the pranking, it's great. Usually the pranking is great, <laughs> but <laughs> while it can be tempting to stand up here and tell you things that uh, make you like me, I don't think I can continue to do that. Um, you won't like some of what I have to say, but I love you so much and I care for you more than I care for your feelings. Maybe <laughs> that'll upset some of you, but the beauty of college is that you will be confronted with ideas that you may disagree with and you need to wade through what I say today, think critically about it, agree, disagree, or wind up somewhere in the middle, and that's okay. Today, I want us to think about sanctification. I know that there are several athletes in this room. I used to be an athlete, although I was never very serious. I know what you guys do to prepare. You eat salad. <laughs> I'm not gonna do that, <laughs> but seriously, you run, you work out at ridiculous times, maybe before class, maybe after class, and you're willing to get rid of things in your lives like soda, sweets, and other hobbies, all because you're trying to achieve your potential as an athlete. And just like music, athletics, art, or anything else that involves practice, there are things that can aid in or hinder sanctification. But unlike athletics, music, or getting really, really good at Smash Bros, we can't think about our sanctification as something that we work really hard at in order to make ourselves great. Our sanctification is not rooted in our work, but rather in our identity. On the other hand, if I told you that I was an athlete, but I did nothing but eat cupcakes and watch TV, you wouldn't believe me. We could all point towards characteristics of athletes, and just because someone claims the identity of an athlete does not make it so. Athletes play sports, they work hard, Athletes look like athletes. So, should Christians also look like Christians? I'm not asking if Christians are perfect, but I do, well, I'm not asking if they wear pleated pants or only listen to Toby Mac, but I wanna know if Christians mean, if being a Christian means that we're motivated differently, if we rejoice in certain things while choosing to abstain from others. One of the RAs, Stephen Bankson, said it best when he asked, if we didn't tell people that we were Christians, would they know it? So what does the life of a believer look like according to scripture? Galatians 5 offers a pretty stark contrast between the believer and the sinner. Starting at verse 16, but I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another. To keep <clears throat> to keep from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and other things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there are no laws. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh 
with its passions and desires. 1 Corinthians 6 reminds us that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, <laughs> revilers, uh, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you're thinking, everybody falls into one of these condemned categories. And I agree. But how does Jesus change that? How does the death and resurrection of Christ not only provide justification, that is, provide forgiveness for sins, but how does Jesus change the way we live now? Our understanding of the gospel is the foundation of our motivation to be Christ-like. Tim Keller, I love listening to Tim Keller, um, said, uh, said it like this, when people aren't motivated by the gospel, they're motivated, motivated <laughs> by either pride or fear. First, the pride people. One group of people in this room are people that hear convicting sermons and think to ourselves, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this. He really needs this. She really needs this. Those of us in this group think we have it all figured out. We think, God loves me because I do what's right. We throw off the things our hearts desire because we know that we need to begrudgingly beat the sin out of our lives. We are kind, we serve the poor, even though we think it's their fault. We don't cuss, we don't want our kids to hang out with kids that cuss, and we're better than that. We've given up everything for God and he better remember. We aren't undeserving Christians saved by grace. We earned it, because honestly, we're pretty good. But the truth is, we can never put God in our debt, and we know it. 1 John 1.8 tells us that if we claim to be without sin, we are deceiving ourselves. That's why when we mess up, we think, oh man, I need to feel really, really bad for a little bit and tell myself how terrible I am, and it can serve as penance, and I can get back to where I need to be. Or we think we can go to God by being good. I know that I think to myself, if I just read my Bible every day, for a week, or if I don't lust, or if I go volunteer somewhere, I can tip the scales in my favor. The problem is that on our best day, we have more in common with the worst sinner in the world than we do with Jesus. It's cliche to say, but I don't think that there's anybody in this room that wouldn't be ashamed if we put up your worst thoughts from the week on that screen. We cannot justify ourselves. It doesn't matter how good we can be, how many days we can go without sinning, or how much money we give, we will mess up again, and at some point, we will be unworthy. This is pride, plain and simple. We try to be our own Jesus, and we are a poor substitute. While some of us are rubbed the wrong way when we hear that we sin, some of us understand our depravity all too well. The other group of those of us are those who are motivated by fear. Some of the room have thought to yourselves, even today, oh no, I don't look like a Christian. I wonder, could God love me? Could God even like me? We say to ourselves, I need to change, I need to change. I watched porn again. I got drunk again. What was I thinking? I cut again, and I probably deserved it. We look at ourselves and we see our sin, and we're ashamed. Sorry. 
We say that we have to be forgiven and that we have been forgiven with our mouths, but our hearts don't believe that we deserve it. We focus on our failures when we focus on our failures and we believe that God is angry with the Christian, we are essentially saying that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. And that's a problem. And the good news is that there's another perspective. The second part of the passage from 1 Corinthians clears things up. I didn't read it earlier. But after listing how basically no one can get into heaven, it says, but you were washed you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The most beautiful paradox in the world is that the gospel is the most simultaneously humbling and dignifying thing that a person can experience. On one hand, the gospel reveals that we deserve death and that God should destroy us. That every ounce of dirtiness that you feel when you sin is completely earned. We racked up such a huge debt that no amount of work, no amount of time, no amount of effort on our part could ever pay for a drop in the ocean of our debt. That only the blood of the most righteous, perfect, and spotless sacrifice could do that. On the other hand, the gospel communicates that we are so loved by God and that God wants to be with us so much that he was willing to sacrifice himself on our behalf. Romans 9 says that while we were yet sinners... God died for us. Not that God is blinded by Jesus' righteousness, but rather that God saw us where we were in our helpless state and said, I want you. Do you understand that? He was beaten for our sake, bled and died for our sake, and it was all willingly, by choice. And that is good news. God values us. And some of us don't believe that today. And your heart says, look at what I've done. Look at how bad I am. But God is not impressed by your sin. I want to let you know that young women and young men, if you are in Christ, it does not matter what you have done. It does not matter how you feel. You have been paid off with blood so valuable that you could never rack up sin that is more costly. Romans 8 tells us that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. The righteousness that Jesus has been gifted, or the righteousness of Jesus has been gifted to you. Let's soak in that. We're super bad and super loved. God is super just and also super merciful. The grace that has been shown is free, but it is not at all cheap all of which leads us to glorify God. So you ask, <clears throat> there's nothing that I could ever do to make God love me any more or any less? And I would say that's correct. So I can do whatever I want? That's correct too. But the difference is, <clears throat> whenever Jesus comes into your life, your heart changes and what you want changes. Justification leads to sanctification, and it's also all God's doing. The gospel doesn't motivate by fear or pride. It motivates by changing us. John Calvin illustrates justification and sanctification by talking about the sun. The gist of the, I think it's in the third book, um, the gist of it is that light and heat don't exist on their own, but they are the natural result of the existence of the sun. 
Similarly, when we are justified, sanctification is the natural result. And as described in Ezekiel, the gospel says that we have been given a new heart and new desires. Unlike fearful motivation, the gospel doesn't compel us to begrudgingly give up the things that we love to stay in favor with God, but rather that we love righteousness now and desire it. So we are willing to give up the things of our flesh because we know that they do not satisfy. Jesus himself tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light in Matthew 11. Obedience is not a curse that we endure to earn our spot in heaven. Obedience is a blessing that leads to living how we were created to live. Life as a gift, God as a gift to us, and us as a gift to God. We realize that he is more than the best prize or thrill that we get from sin. He is the ultimate gift. He is the ultimate gift giver. And when we see the world through the lenses of the gospel, we cannot help but worship. This whole satisfaction in the gospel thing doesn't mean that God gives us stuff that satisfies us. It doesn't mean that I get a BMW, but rather that a BMW is irrelevant to my fulfillment in life. God is our portion forever, and this is how the Apostle Paul was in prison singing praises to God in a seemingly terrible situation. The gospel does not lead to stuff that fulfills. God is the fulfillment. The problem is that we still sin sometimes. And although we are in Christ, we wage war within ourselves, sometimes like dogs that return to their vomit. I've been there, and you've been there. But according to 1 John, the Christian does not live there. Just read it later. Uh, not enough time to go into it. But uh, You see, sometimes we have fleeting pleasures that we give up, not because it seems fun in the moment to give them up, but rather because obedience, righteousness, and holiness are so much better. Another Tim Keller thing, but like Tim Keller mentioned in a recent sermon, it's like we are simultaneously Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We can choose whether to feed our flesh or our spirit by the way that we live. And I want to ask you, do your daily activities, your routines, your hobbies, your habits feed Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde? Do they help you become more like Jesus, more distinct from sin, or do they roll you in filth? Now it's going to get really awkward here, and that's okay. To paraphrase Matt Chandler, on one hand we go to church and sing, all to Jesus I surrender, all to thee I freely give. And then we go home and we giggle at things on TV that put Jesus on the cross. At least I do. Then we feel bad for a little bit, and we throw out every piece of questionable material that we own, and I did this after every single church camp, every single missions trip, or every conference that I ever went to, and I'm sure that that is common amongst this room. And sometimes we laugh about it. Like God wants you to burn all your One Direction albums, and you're like, no! <laughs> but in reality, when we're searing, we're searing our consciences when we let convictions roll off our shoulders. Oftentimes, we actually do need to get rid of things because some things are not beneficial at all to our sanctification. And we are all called to throw off every weight that slows us down in our sanctification. Jesus said that if our right hand causes us to sin, we should cut it off. 
We're addicted to porn as a culture. I learned in a webinar last week that 49% of boys under the age of 13 watch porn on an average of twice a day. But we wouldn't dare stop giving our kids iPhones. In the words of a past RD that I heard secondhand, we don't think it's weird when an athlete won't eat a cookie because they're, it's gonna mess up their progress, but we get up in arms if somebody challenges our entertainment choices. Christians want to sit around watching Game of Thrones, memorizing lyrics that turn women into objects, and then wonder why our non-Christian friends don't see anything compelling about Christianity. If you think I'm judging you, I'm talking about myself. Don't for one second hear me say that I've got it all figured out, because I don't. I'm talking about media and entertainment simply because that's something that I struggle with. But for you, you can fill in the blanks. What might be the things that I watch or the things that I listen to could be, for you, gossip, relationships, the way you talk, or whatever. You and I try to justify the things that hinder us with all sorts of deep-sounding excuses. But I'm pretty sure that I don't have a Daryl Dixon coffee mug shaped like a crossbow because I want to understand and engage with the culture around me on a deeper level. Now, I'm not saying that we can't watch movies and we can't listen to non-Christian music. I love good art, but I want us to ask if the things that we love are a result of our justification and renewed minds. We get so wrapped up in trying not to be legalistic and dualistic that we jump overboard and make a bed of garbage and sleep in it. Simply because something is skillful artistic or culturally relevant does not mean that it should take up real estate in the life of a Christian. In the words of every edgy youth pastor, how much sewage would you dig through to find a quarter? You ask, well, what should I do if my walk is encumbered by something? And I say, make like a teary-eyed church camp kid and throw it out of your life. <laughs> Hebrews 12 opens with this charge. Let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember that God is not mad at you when you trip up. The gospel is key for our motive. Any sin that you're committing is covered, and these growing pains are natural in the process of sanctification. And the cognitive dissonance you feel right now is actually a blessing. <clears throat> what I want to recognize is the trash that I sit in as it compares to the blessings of God, because it is a blessing to be free from sin. God has no desire to punish you for your sin. He already took care of that. But what he does want is for you to be out of bondage. C.S. Lewis says it like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now you say, 
Well, what should I do when I mess up? The answer is simple. Believe in the gospel and repent. The same gospel that saves sinners is the same gospel that sustains believers. And you will not be totally sanctified on this side of eternity, and God is unsurprised by that. The gospel is for every single day as much as it is for the day that you became a Christian. I want to close with this prayer. I got it from a book, but I don't know where the prayer came from, but it's really good. In Christ, there is nothing that we can do that would make you love us more and nothing that we have done that could make you love us less. Your presence and approval are all we need for everlasting joy. As you have been to us, so we will be to others. As we pray, we'll measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.